Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and this is On Becoming. It's been a while since I put out a podcast, and this is part three of a three-part series. So thank you for waiting. I hope you're finding the podcast helpful in your own journey of becoming. If so, please consider following or subscribing to the podcast. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or at paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Let me invite you to get in touch about the podcast if you have comments or questions or suggestions. And don't forget that you can hear the audio version of this podcast wherever you get your audio podcasts, and the video version is on YouTube. It's interesting how often the Platonic Aristotelian dichotomy gets replayed in Kant and Hegel. Let me explain a little bit what I mean by that. Whereas Plato looks to the forms, these abstract, awe-historical things like beauty and goodness, Aristotle believes that we find truth here amidst the flow of life and history. Thus, Aristotle thinks that virtue is something that can only be understood in a concrete situation. Whereas Plato thinks it's something that's abstract and detached from this world. Kant believes that the key to moral acting is what he calls the categorical imperative, which is a seemingly simple formulation of morality that provides the basis for acting. It basically says, act so that you can logically will your action to be done by anyone who's in a similar situation. Yet Hegel disagrees with Kant in two important respects. On the one hand, the sort of moral system that Kant provides is actually a further stage in the development of ethics, what Hegel terms moralität. That term in English is morality, and morality for Hegel is a worked-out system of rules and principles that provides a theoretical formulation of what people already believe. As such, it is a step beyond Zittlichkeit. In that sense, it's like theology something that gets worked out in theory on the basis of what people believe in practice. But such systems are based, or to be valid, must be based, precisely on this shared practice. What makes any ethical system convincing is precisely that it embodies, in a rational, coherent way, what people already believe and already how they act. And it is this, their action, which gives it validity. To put this more bluntly, if we didn't already find certain actions to be right and virtuous, we would never be convinced by a theoretical justification of them. As Nietzsche observes, rational arguments are far too unconvincing for such a purpose. He writes, dialectic is chosen only as a last resort. It is well known that it creates mistrust, that it's not very convincing. The basis for morality, then, is tradition. There can't be any further justification or foundation given for our moral beliefs than that of the basis of tradition. In other words, virtue for Hegel is based on the tradition of a given historical community, not on something abstract or disconnected from everyday life. However, this is not to say that tradition cannot be criticized or revised, nor is Hegel advocating some kind of blind obedience to tradition. There's always room for rethinking tradition, as the history of traditions amply demonstrates. 
Yet that rethinking stems from our actions. Accordingly, Hegel says, it is not therefore because I find something is not self-contradictory, that's a critique of Kant, that it is right. On the contrary, it is right because it is what is right. Thus, moralitate, the theoretical aversion of morality, may be a rational expression or systematizing of that tradition, but it's never a rational justification, which is what Kant thought it was. Of course, Hegel's move toward morality as a shared moral practice, in which the emphasis is on ethos over ethics, is one which involves a kind of historical reversal. Given the historical development of philosophical ethics, the primacy of ethics as a philosophical or moral system over shared moral traditions is one which comes later in time and is itself based on practice. Let me put that another way. Theories are only generalizations or abstract formulations of what occurs in actual practice. Ultimately, practice is the measure of theory. On the other hand, Hegel argues that the problem with Kant's ethics is that it lacks solid moral content. Kant assumes that appealing to reason will tell us what to do. In contrast, Hegel claims that Kant presents us with merely an empty universal, one that can only be filled in by something else. Hegel's contention is that in order for the categorical imperative even to make any sense, it must be supplemented. As an example, the second formulation of the categorical imperative is that one ought to treat others as ends rather than means. Yet how would Kant even have come to this idea were it not for his pietistic Christian upbringing and immersion in a culture that had been thoroughly influenced by Christian ideals? What we are talking about here is not simply about explicating Hegel, for he can be seen as anticipating a turn in recent decades away from Kantian morality toward Aristotle's idea of situated ethics, that ethics cannot be formulated apart from practice. Alistair MacIntyre is a good example of this shift, though we should remember that MacIntyre has been enormously influenced by his study of Hegel, and for that matter, his study of Gadamer. If we put all of this in MacIntyrean terms, we could say that at the heart of Zitlikite is the idea of what he calls a practice. Practices normally have rules that they follow, though not necessarily. Even the rules may themselves, though, be somewhat rough and ready and not easily codified. Playing music, writing a philosophy paper, cheering on one's team, and rock climbing all have conditions for qualifying as good or poor. Such activities are usually learned and practiced by way of seeing examples of things done well and having teachers, formal or not, to help one along. If one knows anything about football, it's relatively easy to spot a good versus a mediocre player of the sport. Both playing the game and being able to watch it critically requires phronesis, which is Aristotle's term for practical knowledge. Practices are largely defined in terms of internal goods or rewards. The reward of being a moral person is, well, being a moral person. As soon as we start to veer from seeing morality as a reward in and of itself, we start to become immoral. 
For if I am caring for someone merely because I hope that person will do me a favor, that is an intrinsic, extrinsic reward, then I'm no longer really caring for that person. Instead, I am scheming for reward by helping someone. Practices are such that they are inherently communal rather than individualistic in nature. That's not to say that there is no sense of individuality, but that it is only found in the context of community. As should be clear at this point, practices are remarkably similar to liturgies. Both have to do with action and regulating action. Each has its own internal goods, and each helps us to live in community with others. Now, there's an important point that needs to be added here. At one point, I found myself explaining the difference between Kant and Hegel on morality to some colleagues. They started with the assumption that Hegel was a moral relativist because of his conception of Zittlichkeit. In contrast, they assumed that Kant was an ethical absolutist because he provided a theory of morality rather than relying on custom or tradition. Thus, my exposition of the two philosophers came to them as a bit of a surprise. Hegel's position is in no way relativistic. He believes that some actions are simply obviously right and others are simply obviously wrong. In this respect, he's actually squarely on the tradition of both Plato and Aristotle, not to mention Paul in Romans 1, all of whom believe that there are moral facts that we simply know to be true. They don't need some further justification. More important, we really can't come up with a justification for them, in the same way that Kant only gives us a theoretical codification. Yet we can also add that, at least for Aristotle, knowing these facts requires having been brought up correctly. Aristotle writes, Anyone who is to listen intelligently to lectures about what is noble and just must have been brought up in good habits. Hegel clearly believes this also. One must be in a good community to understand a right. Zitlikite is something shared that depends upon cooperation with others. Put in other terms, the liturgical practice of the community is what enables one to understand and act. Understanding only really takes place in the acting, which is why Gadamer insists that understanding does not merely involve interpretation and explication, but also application. Gadamer points to an earlier hermeneutic tradition in which there was a distinction made between understanding, interpretation, and application. But then, I think quite rightly, contends that these distinctions are purely theoretical and that in actual practice, application is key to any understanding at all. Let me put that another way. It's not until we see how a passage of a classic text or an idea relates to our lives that we truly understand. Application is the final step of understanding, the step that makes something relevant to our lives. At this point, I want to move from Hegel to the liturgical structure of religion. Hegel's contention that Zittlichkeit is the basis for moralität is confirmed by current psychological research. In The Righteous Mind, Why Good People and Are Divided by Politics and Religion, Jonathan Haidt advances this thesis. Intuitions come first, strategic reasoning second. On this view, moral intuitions arise automatically 
and almost instantaneously, long before moral reasoning has a chance to get started. And those first intuitions tend to drive our later reasoning. In practice, this means that we all have certain ideas, we might say gut-level intuitions, about what is right and wrong. While we as individuals have moral intuitions, those intuitions are usually strongly connected to our culture. Social psychologists have provided quite a bit of evidence to show that we start with ideas of right and wrong and then seek reasons to justify those ideas. Haidt explicitly links this pattern to David Hume, who believes that reason works in the service of the passions. Belief for Hume springs from our passions, or intuitions, or what he labels, given the time period in which he's writing, sentiments. Haidt examines empirical evidence from neuroscience that shows Hume to be right. Just to be clear, one of the reasons why Hume's view of morality was rejected by many philosophers was that because it originated in the emotions, it was thought to be purely subjective. In one important sense, of course, it is subjective, in the sense that such a view has been formulated by a human subject. But now we know that this feature of subjectivity is simply part of being human. This is what we are. One of the turning points in neuroscience toward this view was Antonio Damasio's book, Descartes' Error. There, Damasio points out that on the basis of patients who had brain damage to the ventromedial prefrontal cortex and had no sense of emotion, that this loss of emotion left such patients either unable to make decisions or simply make, able to make bad decisions. Damasio concludes that we truly need emotions to reason correctly. Without gut feelings, we cannot function. In other words, the view that begins, at least with Plato, that the emotions are what cause us to do wrong and make mistakes, is deeply misguided. Instead, the interplay of emotions and reason results in what we call rationality. That might seem a strange conclusion if one believes that the emotions are just dumb, Yet scientists and psychologists and many philosophers now realize that the emotions are actually a form of rationality or cognition. We know through our feelings. This leads hate, and in this he's hardly alone, to conclude that intuition and reasoning are really two kinds of cognition. In this recognition, we can say that hate and contemporary psychology are, in effect, rediscovering a pattern seen in Aristotle. While phronesis is described by Aristotle as practical reasoning, to a great extent it is really a kind of intuition that is, in turn, greatly shaped by our community. We see certain actions, and we immediately judge them to be right or to be wrong. Note that Aristotle does not feel any need to justify his claims about morality. He thinks they're just obviously true. It's really only when someone disagrees with us that we are forced to come up with justifications for our views. Yet I believe that hate gets something profoundly wrong. He claims that while intuitions are cognitive, they are not a kind of reasoning. Since he doesn't give any kind of account of what he means by cognitive or cognition or reasoning, it's difficult to know exactly what causes him to make this claim. If reason means something like working out a solution or explanation by way of dialectic or logic, then it should be obvious that intuitions clearly do not count as reasoning. 
but I think this is too narrow a definition of reasoning. In contrast, and of course those of you who've listened to the podcast will not be surprised in terms of what I'm going to say, namely that Nietzsche claims that our most sacred convictions, the unchanging elements in our supreme values, are judgments of our muscles. The point of Nietzsche's assertion is that we think as embodied beings. Earlier we noted that Nietzsche considers logical reasoning to be generally unconvincing, but this is because he believes that, and now I'm quoting from him, very short quote, there is more reason in your body than in your best wisdom. To put all of this together, Nietzsche is claiming that we're most convinced by the kind of reasoning that takes place on a gut level. We are least convinced by an elaborate argument that requires multiple steps. If Nietzsche is correct about this, then this helps explain why phenomenology is so powerful. To show someone that such and such is the case by way of a careful phenomenology is a very effective way of convincing that person. Logical arguments have value, but they are actually not nearly as effective. One might put this as follows. We need to feel that something is true. I'm not saying that truth value is based on feelings, but there's an important sense in which emotion and reason need to be working together. And here we come back to my overall thesis. What we experience in life, in this case liturgy, has much greater effect on our way of being than does doctrine or dogma. To be sure, we cannot do without something like B3. Here I do not mean to make a claim strictly confined to religion in general, or even Christianity in particular. Instead, I think we need something like doctrine in such realms as politics, science, psychology, to name just a few. Moreover, doctrine changes over time to reflect people's actual experience. My argument began with examining the early church in order to show that it had virtually no doctrine, and so was driven primarily by its liturgy. To that I would add that even with the advent of the creeds, the fundamental situation doesn't change. Most people who are religious are much more motivated by their B2 beliefs than their B3 beliefs. But there is no reason, I'm not intending upon there, to conclude that such motivation does not count as reasoning. I think Nietzsche is right in saying that dialectics is the least convincing form of reasoning, at least if we were concerned with convincing other people who do not share our views. As an example, classic proofs for God's existence may provide comfort to the faithful, but they're not particularly effective in convincing people who do not already believe. I once made a quip in class about evangelists not taking advantage of the ontological argument in their sermons to which a visiting student responded, well, I have a friend who became a Christian because of the ontological argument, to which I said, then you have a very weird friend. While I'm not ruling out the possibility of such arguments being efficacious at helping with B3 beliefs, I'm simply saying that most people are not Christians because of such arguments. Or to put this in a different way, when I would go to the main three arguments for the existence of God, which are the ontological, the cosmological, and teleological arguments, but I'm, I'm not going to formulate those here. My students often express surprise at how unconvincing they found these arguments to be. They had been expecting something really heavy-duty, you know, the kind of arguments where you think, this has got to be the, the truth. 
I think it's not too much to say that their overall response was something along the lines of, if I didn't already believe, I don't think these arguments would do anything to convince me. Now let's turn to something a little different. Haidt contends that, and now I'm quoting from him, a college football game is a superb analogy for religion. I think that's right. He takes this to be the case because, and now I'm quoting from him again, it is a religious rite, a football game, that's right, a religious rite, that does just what it's supposed to do. It pulls people up from Durkheim's lower level, the profane, to his higher level, the sacred. It flips the hive switch and makes people feel for a few hours that they are simply part of the whole. He goes on to cite Durkheim's definition of religion, one that I've used before. It goes like this. A religion is a unified system of beliefs and practices relative to sacred things. That is to say, things set apart and forbidden. Beliefs and practices which unite into one single moral community called a church. All of those who adhere to them. One might understandably wonder how hate can move from the claim that a football game is analogous to religion to citing Durkheim. The answer lies in the phrase, a single moral community, and the fact that his argument is targeted against the new atheists. Uh, these would be Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, and Christopher Hitchens. What unites the new atheists is their definition of, and opposition to, religion in terms of belief be three, in supernatural agents. Richard Dawkins defines the God hypothesis as the idea that, now I'm quoting from him, there exists a superhuman supernatural intelligence who deliberately designed and created the universe and everything in it, including us. His entire book is an attempt at refuting such an idea and arguing, generally rather poorly, that belief in the existence of God is simply a delusion. Not surprisingly, hate appears unaware that a good deal of analytic philosophy of religion is concerned with defending such an idea, namely that belief in God is not a delusion. And it turns out that Dawkins seems equally ignorant of the rather impressive work done by many philosophers of religion to defend God's existence. The virtue of hate's position is that it moves the discussion away from the primary focus on beliefs of the B3 sort. He contends that attempting any kind of understanding of religion by way of its B3 beliefs is like, and here I'm quoting from him, trying to understand the persistence and passion of college football by studying the movements of the ball. What he suggests doing is precisely what I've been doing in this episode, considering B3 beliefs within the context of Christian liturgy and its B2 beliefs. Whereas Dawkins claims that religion consists of and I'm quoting from him, time-consuming, wealth-consuming, hostility-provoking rituals that end up being counterproductive, hate marshals considerable evidence from evolutionary biology to show that religion has actually been key to creating moral communities, that is, communities that foster trust and cooperation. It's important to note here, of course, that religions evolve, which is what I've been trying to show about Christianity. What we today call Christianity is simply not the same thing as the phenomena that we find in the early church. Moreover, in the same way that religions can change over time, so can conceptions of God. For example, not all that long ago it was quite thinkable for Christians to believe that the Bible condoned slavery. Not everyone thought that, but many people did. 
However, today one would be hard-pressed to find someone who claims to be Christian and likewise claims that the Bible clearly condones slavery. Both Christianity and its God have evolved. What Christianity and other religions provide is a conception of the sacred that has made our evolution into moral beings possible. In his book Darwin's Cathedral, David Sloan Wilson shows how Calvinism in Geneva sanctified the most mundane aspects of life and significantly improved the lives of people in Geneva. Wilson concludes that Calvinism is an interlocking system with a purpose, to unify and coordinate a population of people to achieve a common set of goals by collective action. The goals may be difficult to define precisely, but they certainly include what Durkheim referred to as secular utility, the basic goods and services that all people need and want inside and outside of religion. The interlocking system includes explicit behavioral prescriptions, specific theological beliefs, and a mighty fortress of social control and coordination mechanisms. Calvin's brand of Christianity was certainly demanding, and it's precisely this strictness that made Geneva flourish in terms of its secular utility. How did that work? As we've noted, religious groups are bound together by what they take to be sacred. Exactly what these sacred things might be can differ greatly from one group to another. The important thing is that the members of the group agree on that sacrality. One might be tempted to think that what binds people in religious groups together is the liturgical practices that we tend to identify as specifically religious, such as reading the Bible and praying. One might likewise be tempted to think that the cohesion achieved by such groups is due to their agreement regarding B3 beliefs, such as belief in heaven and hell, the divinity of Jesus, and other things mentioned by various Christian creeds. Yet Robert Putnam and David Campbell analyzed all the data they could find to determine how Americans who are religious differ from those who are not religious. What they conclude is that, and now I'm quoting from them, by many different measures, religiously observant Americans are better neighbors and better citizens than secular Americans. They are more generous with their time and money, especially in helping the needy, and they are more active in community life. However, what they found was that, and now I'm quoting them again, it is religious belongingness that matters for neighborliness, not religious believing. They were, that's a quote, by the way, say were unable to find any correlation between people's B3 beliefs and how well they acted in terms of generosity and concern for those in need. From what we've seen, that probably doesn't come as a surprise. Throughout this series of podcasts, I've attempted to argue that B2 beliefs are more fundamental than B3 beliefs in driving religiosity. People can be identified as religious precisely by what they take to be important and how that belief drives their action. I've made a point of not defining the term religion in advance, but now I think we're at a place where such a definition is appropriate. While the English term religion arises from the Latin term religio, we use the term religion to designate something quite different from what religio designated originally, which was a sense of scrupulosity in morals. If we consider Cicero's On the Nature of the Gods, we find that religio refers to 
following rules or prohibitions that have been instituted either by human beings or the gods. Over time, the word comes to designate such things as right, worship, and reverence. Yet it does not denote be three. Indeed, the Vulgate version of James 1.27 translates the Greek term threskeia as religio. The point of that passage is that one's religio is about action and not belief. True religion, says James, is one that expresses itself in concrete actions. Ultimately, religio is about what one takes to be sacred. Well, that could be God or gods. It could just be likely something mundane, like caring for widows and orphans. The idea that religion necessarily denotes a set of doctrines or B3 beliefs is a comparatively recent invention. Moreover, such a concept of what makes someone religious is problematic even within a religion like contemporary Judaism, since being Jewish is not about believing a set of doctrines, that is, B3, but being part of a community. Belonging to a community is what religion is most fundamentally about. Whether one holds a given community's stated B3 beliefs is considerably less important than whether one sees oneself as belonging to that community. Of course, if this is the case, then religion probably needs to be defined more broadly. There are many ways of religious belonging, ways to holding communal views regarding sacrality that go far beyond what we normally call religion. So perhaps it's time to rethink what religion could mean in the future. Just so you know, that's one of the goals of this podcast. Thanks for listening to On Becoming. As always, if you find the podcast to be helpful in your own becoming, consider supporting it at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or through paypal.com or the PayPal app. The username for both is our email address, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us or just click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.